You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. An update on those iOS zero days. Calls to take biomedical facilities off the hacking target list. Nazar and the Shadow Brokers, NSA and ASD issue joint advice on web shell malware. A report on astroturfing and influence operations. Joker's stash lays out more stolen cards. Michael Sechrist from BAH on the increase in ITOT convergence. Our guest is Terrence Jackson from Thycotic on HIPAA, telemedicine, and the new normal of data regulation. And Nintendo reports a problem with a legacy system. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 24th, 2020. ZDNet reports that Apple has disputed the seriousness of the vulnerabilities ZecOps claimed it discovered when it saw them being exploited in the wild. It's the exploitation in the wild that Apple takes particular exception to. Cupertino says it found no indications that the zero days pose any real threat to users. Apple does acknowledge the zero days and says they will be fixed in the next iOS release. Some researchers think ZecOps may have observed malformed emails and not malicious exploitation of iOS bugs. ZecOps says it intends to release more information on its discovery. In the meantime, Naked Security suggests that whatever else the bugs might be, they don't seem to be directly exploitable, and so any risk is probably low. China says that biomedical organizations should be off-limits to hacking. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is among organizations receiving the attention of hackers. Employees' email accounts have been compromised, the South China Morning Post reports. The Level 4 research facility has been the subject of repeated speculation that COVID-19 accidentally escaped from the labs there and did not originate in the city's wet markets. The speculation is surely a matter of legitimate inquiry, especially given Beijing's less-than-transparent record during the pandemic. But in some fringe quarters, such speculation has reached the level of subjective certainty, which is pretty clearly approaching chemtrail territory. But it's FireEye's midweek report describing their recent look at APT32 has prompted a call from Beijing, as Reuters says, urging all nations to condemn any attack on an organization involved in working against the pandemic. There's surely substantial international sentiment for placing biomedical facilities in a protected category, off-limits to cyber attack the way the laws of armed conflict prohibit most deliberate attacks against hospitals. It's not clear, however, that APT32, a threat actor associated with the Vietnamese government, is engaged in destructive or disruptive attacks. FireEye concluded the APT has been conducting intrusion campaigns against Chinese targets involved with responding to the pandemic, 
especially China's Ministry of Emergency Management and the local government of Wuhan. These seem to be more in the nature of espionage. Vietnam has denied any involvement, telling Reuters that the accusations are baseless. An arguably more menacing threat to hospitals is playing out in the Czech Republic, which continues to look toward Russia as the source of recent cyber incidents in the nation's medical facilities. Tension between Prague and Moscow continues, Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty reports. Removal of a Prague statue of Soviet Marshal Konev, who led the army group that drove through Czechoslovakia in 1945, but who also crushed the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 and was instrumental in erecting the Berlin Wall, has given offense to Moscow. So has renaming the street on which Russia's embassy is located in Prague, in honor of former Russian Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemstov. The inveterate critic of President Putin was murdered outside the Kremlin in 2015. Moscow regards both acts as provocations. On the Czech side, there's widespread outrage over cyber operations, reconnaissance and battle space preparation for the most part, that affected healthcare facilities during the current pandemic. These activities increasingly look like the work of Russian operators. A researcher associated with the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies reports finding a previously unremarked campaign, NAZAR, that used tools the shadow brokers are believed to have obtained from the U.S. National Security Agency and then leaked to threat actors. The name of the operations is a Farsi word, and there's Farsi text associated with the operation, but attribution remains murky. It would be premature to call NAZAR an Iranian operation. The U.S. National Security Agency and the Australian Signals Directorate have issued joint guidance on detecting and preventing web shell malware. Why take up web shells? As the agencies explain, web shells provide attackers with persistent access to a compromised network using communication channels disguised to blend in with legitimate traffic. Web shell malware is a long-standing, pervasive threat that continues to evade many security tools. The public guidance is another instance of Five Eyes Intelligence Services undertaking public outreach on cybersecurity. Domain Tools this morning published their own study of how the domains apparently devoted to the cause of reopening normal life in the U.S. came to be and who registered them. Many of the sites, a number of them with Second Amendment themes, appear to Domain Tools to have been established by Aaron Dorr, a consultant who advises political movements on advocacy and organization. Their use of a small set of common templates seemed to derive from another political consultancy, One-Click Politics, which further raised suspicion that the apparently local, ostensibly grassroots sites were in fact AstroTurf. Domain Tools emphasized in a conversation with us that one common feature on the AstroTurf sites is a prominent and functioning donation button. This suggests to them that a non-trivial goal of the operation is making money. Domain Tools also suggested two areas that merit some attention. First, deep fakes have been generally associated with faked audio or video content. Domain Tools points out that one of the problems of astroturfing and influence operations generally is the production of useful content at scale. Sometimes this is done through plagiarism or repurposing. Sometimes, and this is something Domain Tools noticed in connection with Mr. Dorr's operation, by having some lone staccanovite crank out a number of bylined pieces, using the same byline does tend to blow the gaff, but it happens. 
Domain tools suggest that deep learning tools can be adapted to rapidly produce good enough written content in the service of influence. This could involve impersonation of real persons or simply generate articles that could be attributed to various sock puppets. Second, while most of the AstroTurf seems based domestically in the United States, there are indications that a few of them may have infrastructure in Hong Kong. That's curious and deserves further investigation. Remember Joker's stash? They're back. The carding market is offering a fresh batch of stolen pay card data. The goods this time are mostly cards stolen from U.S. and South Korean users, Bank Info Security says. And finally, Nintendo has confirmed that hackers gained access to about 160,000 player accounts, according to ZDNet. The attackers are thought to have abused a legacy login system, Nintendo Network ID, NNID, that remains in use to manage old Wii U or Nintendo 3DS accounts. What the hackers have done with the caper seems to indicate that petty minds are behind the whole thing. A lot of them are buying up Fortnite in-game currency. We know... We know in-game currency can be traded for things of real value, used to launder illicit cash, and so on. But really, Fortnite. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Terrence Jackson. He's Chief Information Security and Privacy Officer at Phycotic, a provider of privileged access management tools. Our conversation highlights the interesting times we find ourselves in when it comes to HIPAA, telemedicine, and the new normal of data regulation. We find ourselves today in, uh, I call it data privacy soup. Um, <laughs> right now, 
we have at least 20 states that have drafted or are in the process of drafting their own unique uh, data privacy legislation. And that is honestly at the point now where it's almost untenable for the average business to keep up. I mean, every day uh, that there's a nuance, you know, most recently, you, obviously it was uh, what CCPA and mm-hmm. due to the COVID-19, certain parts of that, they were trying to get, you know, the, to delay the enforcement of it because of what's going on with, uh, you know, health and, and the, the need to share data uh, right. between companies now. Um, and even with GDPR, I was on a uh, briefing call with one of our uh, privacy vendors and they were just going over what's going on like in Europe in regards to GDPR and it, it in fact still is you know enforced and um, you know you have companies attempting to scan employees or you did before everything was pretty much uh, <laughs> shut down um, right. but we're, we're trying to scan employees our foreheads when they were coming in to work to you know scan their temperatures. And that actually crossed some data privacy boundaries, specifically in Europe. Um, you know, where's hmm. that data going? What are you going to do with it? What, what's the collection purpose of it, which is a big tenet of GDPR? You're only supposed to collect data that's absolutely needed. So was that a needed piece of data? Yeah. To the employer and their coworkers, probably, you know, maybe, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, probably, probably not long term. And then... If you do get a reading, then what? Um, so it's just yeah. a lot of different things happening right now. It's interesting times. Yeah, yeah. You know, yesterday I was speaking with someone who was uh, one of the folks who was instrumental back when they were putting together HIPAA. And he was saying that the folks he's been talking to when it comes to HIPAA right now, that with all with all of this telemedicine things and, you know, the the, the need to uh, to be flexible with the way that patients are being treated – that basically the the folks who enforce HIPAA put out the word that, you know, we're not changing any of the regulations, but we are going to change enforcement. You know, here, here we're not going to go after you for some of the things we would have gone after you for, um, given this extraordinary situation. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you bring up telemedicine. Um, that is, has seen the exponential increases in the past couple of weeks due to the, you know, social isolation, self-quarantine, and even some of the smaller practices where I can see this possibly becoming an issue post-COVID-19 that aren't necessarily set up for telemedicine, but now are fielding phone calls from patients without the ability to really verify who they're talking to on the other end. Mm. So, um, I, I see a potential there for, you know, exploit of medical information. And a, a lot of the, I guess, the independent practitioners don't have a lot of the security controls in place to verify, you know, who they're talking to is, in fact, the the, the patient. But then it, on the other end, what, are, what is the receptionist or the nurse doing with that information once they, you know, take it online? Um, they're writing it down in a notepad, you know, what's happening to that notepad. So it's just a, a lot of things that are are happening due to the circumstances that, that we're in right now that I don't think a lot of the current laws were really 
enforced with pandemic in mind. This is our new normal for the, you know, <laughs> for for the next month or two. We really yeah. don't know, but just making sure that the people who need data can get access to it without fear of being penalized by a regulator needs to come into account going forward when these laws are crafted. And I'm a fan for a federal or national level privacy law as long as it, it, it has some sort of, you know, oversight with private industry to help craft it. The proper SMEs are in the room and it's not done in, you know, a bubble. That's Terrence Jackson from Thycotic. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Michael Sechrist. He's the chief technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, Michael, it's great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on uh, some of the issues that uh, are, on, are on your mind when it comes to uh, the increase in convergence, when it comes to uh, IT and OT and these transformations we're seeing with uh, OT itself. What sort of things can you share with us today? Hey, thanks uh, for having me back. So in terms of uh, the OT, the rise of OT, I mean, this is something that's been on the radar for many, many years. Um, MITRE recently put out, uh, obviously, the ICS or the Industrial Control Security um, uh, ATAC framework, uh, which basically gives you kind of a lay of the land of how potential attackers are going to use certain vectors to um, to get into these kind of sensitive uh, networks and operational technology environments. So we've got the OT as something that we're generally seeing clients wanting to expand coverage for, that they make sure that that's kind of wrapped up in any contract or sort of uh, focus when we're, we're not just kind of talking about IT operations, IT networks anymore. It's really that convergence we're seeing on both sides and making sure that uh, when we're thinking about even ATAC frameworks and how we're looking at threats, that we're looking at both IT uh, and OT, um, in addition to the other frameworks that are out there like mobile. But OT is certainly something that we're seeing as one of the key ways that clients are coming for like managed services. Now, it's my perception, and, and tell me if this is correct, that uh, sometimes there can be um, challenges in getting those two sides of the house, the IT folks and the OT folks, to uh, to communicate uh, effectively? That's correct. Um, you know, when you think of OT, you think of almost, uh, we, first off, you've got different risk profiles, different risk tolerances on both sides of the equation in terms mm-hmm. of IT and OT. And how we were talking uh, before about covid and uh, about the the kind of the infection and how that kind of would affect connectivity and availability. Availability is always a enormous concern for operational technology. OT environments are extremely sensitive. They typically have uh, fewer 
remote access points, ways to enter that environment. And um, they keep it that way because the availability, um, the needs um, are much, much higher. So um, when you think about an availability potential attack or some sort of strain on availability in a, in a network, it becomes very important as to how you're going to continue to secure those environments in a way that also protects your employees. You've got potentially, uh, you know, when you think about even deploying a patch, right, a lot of times you might have to put, fly some in some specialists from an OT vendor and put them on site to, to actually physically go into the data center, or physically go into some part of your production facilities and upgrade those devices. Given the limitations on travel these days, given the limitations now on essentially, you know, getting into these environments, can that be done? You know, can do we have the employees? Are we do, are we willing to kind of put someone at risk to do that patch upgrade and get mm-hmm. on site these days? That's that's a much different conversation and not one that can be taken just within the kind of CISO realm. Yeah, and I I suppose uh, a real possibility that the, the availability of those folks, the number of people who are available to do those things, um, could become a challenge. Yeah, for certainly, um, and it's not just kind of a challenge. Uh, to um, their essential well-being, it's a challenge. Just even physically, can I can I actually fly to the location? Can I actually get into the office space today? Can I get into the sensitive part of the uh, of the facility? Um, mm. You've got a lot of a lot of different um, kind of mechanics and, and machinations that you didn't have prior that you do now under kind of like a COVID nineteen response. And you also have a sense of you don't have a kind of a timeline as to the duration you might have to do this or kind of the limitations as the, as we move forward in this environment. I also think about the difficulty of breach containment and of forensics. You know, doing these environments, you you uh, you cannot if you have a potentially uh, infected or suspicious, you have a kind of suspicions of of an infection on an OT device. There's likely no way you're going to be able to um, send that in the uh, in the mail, you know, to move that remotely to get you know evaluated from a forensics perspective, mm-hmm. and that's a um, that's another challenge that CISOs should uh, that have to kind of consider today. Yeah, it, it really is a kind of a, a new reality as folks are recalibrating uh, the various levels of risk that uh, that this brings. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, ironically, we've seen some of attackers, you know, realize the severity of their actions as well. It was interesting to see the Maze ransomware team offering discounts for decrypting uh, previously infected devices through their ransomware for trying to reach out and helping delete leaked data that the ransomware mm. had collected and not target medical organizations. So you've kind of seen. Uh, at times, a uh, a uh, you know a change of heart, even among attackers, um, given kind of the severity of what we're seeing in the physical world, yeah. uh, which is you know it's uh, it's not necessarily a Hallmark movie story from attackers' <laughs> perspective, but it is something that is slightly positive. Right, right, yeah. All right, well, Michael Seacrest, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. 
Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.